Election College Episode 120, The Father of the U.S. Constitution, James Madison. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Hey, Ben. A lot of us know James Madison. We've heard the name. We seen the picture. He kind of looks stern and white-haired and wears a wig. But <laughs> who is this guy, James Madison, anyway? He definitely looks like a guy I would not want to mess with. And if you were casting a movie of the uh, 1790s, he would be the, the mean judge, I think. But uh, he also did like a lot of stuff for the country. Yeah, not to mention the whole Bill of Rights thing and well, the Constitution. He's a pretty important figure in our history. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the early life of James Madison. We are going to spend the next two episodes with James. I don't have a nickname for him, do you? Um, Jimmy? Sure. No. Well, we have a Jimmy later on, like 150 years later, but whatever. We'll just call him James Madison. I think he preferred to be called James. Yeah. Like so said, he, he's stern. Yeah, he is. He he might be little, but he's stern. So, I you know, they say that about shorter people, that they can be the most fierce. So James Madison was born in Port Conway, Virginia. Well, actually kind of near it at Belgrove Plantation in March of 1751. And his mom was like, hey, I want to go back to my parents' house to give birth to James. So that's what she did. And now, he I've was, never had a baby, Jason. I've never personally given birth. But if I was going to, I think my parents' house would be the last place I would want to do so. It, yeah. That's that just be, me, though. Yeah. I'm I'm sure it was a lot different then, but right. I don't know. Love to hear what our audience thinks about <laughs> that. Would you, would you like to uh, go to your parents' house? Or how about your in-law's house while you're having your first kid? That would be strange. But he was the oldest of 12 kids, and he had seven brothers and four sisters. Uh, unfortunately, as was the case in that day and age, many infants died, and three of James's brothers died as infants, and uh, one of those was actually stillborn. And his sister and brother passed away later on. Uh, his sister was seven years old and his brother was three. They actually died in a dysentery epidemic that really swept through all of Orange County. And get this, Ben, it was because of contaminated water. We take a lot for granted these days. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. We don't have a, we don't have a very high mortality rate with infants and we certainly don't have a dysentery epidemic, uh, which wasn't uncommon at that time, but uh, he was a son of a tobacco farmer, uh, tobacco planter, and uh, they're on Mount Pleasant, which, you know, you can go visit Mount Pleasant. And James Madison later, of course, is going to 
inherit that, which is why it's still around. But his father did own the property and um, had a, a bunch of slaves, a lot of acreage, and was one of the, the most influential landowners in Orange County during that time. From the age of about 11 to 16, James Madison was actually studying under Donald Robertson, and he attributes a lot of what he knows to Donald Robertson throughout his life. And he learned a lot about mathematics and geography and different languages. Um, he got really interested and good at speaking Latin, which, of course, everyone knows you have to speak Latin if you're going to be any kind of educated in the 1700s. And really kind of gives all the credit to Robertson for being such a great teacher to him. Yeah. And so later on, he goes back home to Montpelier, and he studies for two years under Reverend Thomas Martin. And all of that's in preparation to go to college, of course. And unlike a lot of Virginians, he was like, hey, I don't want to go to William and Mary. And I know it, that continues kind of today. Kids want to leave home and mm -hmm. go somewhere else. So he's like, New Jersey sounds like a wonderful place to go to. So he heads up to the College of New Jersey, which we now know as Princeton. And get this, Ben. He's his roommate, right? Philip uh -huh. Furneaux. Yeah. They're they're all friends and, and all that good stuff. And he's like, Hey, Phil, I like your sister Mary. And I want to marry Mary. And guess what? It didn't work. No, she said no. Man. Ouch. Yeah, and that actually is kind of a sore spot for Madison as he continues on. He doesn't get married till a lot later in life. We'll get there. But uh, this is pretty unusual. If you're not getting married in the late teens or very early 20s, that's kind of a ding on your reputation. Yeah. So, Ben, I really don't want to bring this up, but <laughs> he encounters somebody while he is studying and that somebody is yeah i don't yeah. even know if you can say his name aaron burr yeah but he's like aaron burr i don't agree with you and i'm going to be your rival so <laughs> we won't get too much into that but just know that madison helped form the american Whig society aaron burr was in competition with him and was a snark all of his life. He was a snark <laughs> in everybody's life. <laughs> yeah, man. Hey, so we, we talked about how uh, Madison was educated. He was educated by a lot of different Presbyterian clergymen, and pretty much everybody was Presbyterian in the early days, you know. But uh, James Madison, we don't really actually know for certain what his religious background was. And we hear, of course, a lot of debate about, you know, it was a it was a Christian nation to begin with. No, it wasn't a Christian nation. They were all deists. No, they weren't deists. They were, some of them were Christian. Some of them were nothing. Some of them were somewhere in between. But as far as Madison goes, like, we don't really know. I mean, we, we think he probably leaned towards deism, but he was never really outright about any of his beliefs. So he was one of those guys who was, um, you know, moral in a sense, but not at least outwardly and, and openly subscribing to any, uh, that we know of, subscribing to any organized religion. Yeah. Kind of like with Jefferson, you may not, or you may agree with their beliefs or lack thereof, 
But if you do have a religious persuasion, you can thank both of them for existing because they did a lot that we take for granted now. Right. So we'll get into that a little bit later. But Madison graduates from Princeton and he's like, Britain, what in the heck are you doing? You're taxing us. And I don't like that because, well, I just think that stinks that you have this parliament who has no jurisdiction over the colonies and you're trying to enforce all of these taxes. We're not getting representation. So I think we need to talk about rising up. So in October of 1775, he actually gets commissioned as a colonel of the Orange County Militia. And it's kind of a role apart from all the other roles during the Revolutionary War because he didn't actually have any combat. He didn't see any combat. He was more of an overseer. And part of that's for health reasons. I assume also, I mean, being that we mentioned this in brief, but Madison was never more than, what was he, like 5'4", and never yeah. more than about 100 pounds. So probably was not going to be the most sturdy fighter. Um, a very intelligent man, but not not very intimidating in a battle, I think you would say. So Madison served on the Virginia State Legislature from 1776 up to 1779, and there he gets to know and becomes a protege of Thomas Jefferson. And um, they become kind of mentor and mentee, or at least uh, uh, friends in some sense, and he learns a lot from him there. And, um, you know, they have a, a bit of a history together, or I guess a bit of a future together from this point on. Yeah, and earlier we, we talked about how if you have a religious persuasion, you can thank him, you can thank Thomas Jefferson for existing, and that was such the case. They actually collaborate with uh, Elijah Craig, you remember him, he's a Baptist minister at the time. And uh, back then, there was the thought that you need to have a license and you need to be affiliated with the Church of England and itinerant preachers who would just go out and start preaching. Uh, the Madison and Jefferson were like, no, you should be able to do that. You should have the right to religious freedom. And so Jefferson and Madison fight to have the power of the state interfere in religious matters. So go Madison, go Jefferson. Yeah, and go Elijah Craig, because he also made whiskey. So, you know, that's good. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, because <laughs> in Virginia, they were making whiskey. Baptist minister. In Kentucky, they were making bourbon. Baptist minister. Yeah. Go figure. <laughs> So Madison actually becomes the youngest delegate to the Continental Congress. And if you ever wanted to meet somebody who was constantly reading, who was constantly writing, who was getting bills passed, who was making sure parliamentary procedure was being followed, who knew what was going on in Congress, essentially, that was James Madison. Uh, he really was a mover and shaker. He was able to actually persuade Virginia to give up all of its claims on any Northwestern territories, which, you know. This is pretty much everything that gets admitted to the Union after the Revolutionary War. And there had been a lot of contention during that time between Connecticut and Pennsylvania and Maryland and Virginia. And Madison becomes the guy who kind of, you know, hey, um, go ahead and give up your claims and we're going to take care of this in a different way. Uh, the interesting thing is he gets elected to uh, 
a second round in the Virginia House of Delegates. And this is so he, he goes from being in the Virginia House of Delegates, he goes into the Continental Congress, he comes back to the Virginia House of Delegates. I mean, I'm sure there's overlap there, and really sees um the the final years of the House of Delegates and gets really frustrated with all this democracy and uh I don't wanna have the people have a choice. Yeah, it's fascinating because there is this well, do you really want every single person to have a voice? And that's something that isn't spoken a lot about until you come to an election year, because you don't really think of the Republican style of government that we actually have, where we in America are governed by representative government. We are not truly a democracy. And we would, I, I know I kind of view it this way is that sounds kind of elitist, doesn't it? That you have to have somebody acting on your behalf, but it turns out that it's kind of genius the way the whole thing was set up, even though we may interpret it a little different today. Right. Yeah. Hey, so the Articles of Confederation are around and people are like, mm, we've got all these sovereign states. We've got this really weak central government. It's not going great. I mean, we're we're through the war. We've figured out that we're not part of England anymore. But we don't have any money. Uh, we can't pay all of our debts. We have no idea what's really going on. <laughs> right. And so <laughs> Madison and Washington are kind of concerned that if they don't get some stuff figured out, and you know how money always causes tense issues and, and problems with people personally, let alone nationally. Um, Dude, if we don't get something working on our side, the states are like going to throw a fit and overtake each other. Yeah, it's pretty crazy because think about it. You not only we, we talked about this in a recent episode where what do we do with the debt of some states for the revolution? And of course, Hamilton was very much of the persuasion that, well, the federal government should assume responsibility for some of the state's debts. And you had that warring faction of, well, no, they shouldn't. And then on an individual basis, think about this. Get this, Ben. Can you imagine fighting in the revolution and you get nothing for it? That's kind of sick, right? We would yeah. never think about that. And well, actually, if you're a vet, you might have had some issues with this because it's an issue today where are we compensating our veterans adequately? Well, it was a real bad problem for the Revolutionary War heroes. They came home and oftentimes didn't get compensated very well. And there was a rebellion that arose. It was called Shays Rebellion. We can talk about that. We could probably give that a whole other episode, but it yeah. happened up in Massachusetts and these veterans were working in the rural areas and they were not getting compensated for what they had done. Yeah, because there's no money, right? I mean... Oh, yeah, <laughs> you need that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is part of what everybody's saying is, let's get some money moving in this place. 
um, because we just fought a war and some of us did it because we actually believed in the cause. Some of us did it because we needed a job. And now you're saying my job won't pay me. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I do agree, Jason, we should do a whole episode on Shay's rebellion in the future. Yeah. So the whole deal with the Articles of Confederation is that it just did not give much power to the federal government. So something had to be done and a constitutional convention, which is where they gave away a bunch of swag in Philly. (laughs) And uh, you think they still have the USB cards and the, not the USB cards, but you know, the, well, they're like business cards and the little thing pops out and it's a USB drive. Yeah. I think that's probably, uh I don't see why not. So Madison and a bunch of other guys head up to Philly and write a constitution. Yeah. And Madison is insane. He speaks over 200 times at the constitution and all the other delegates are like, you know, I I can see some of them rolling their eyes as he gets up another time. Uh, I just like to say, and you know, they're, they're all rolling their eyes. And as he continues to talk and continues to bring up good points and valuable insights, they're all like, Oh wow, actually this guy's not bad. Little, little Jimmy's not, not doing too bad. Uh, Let's fast forward a little bit. At the end of the convention, we've got a constitution, and everybody's like, he kind of wrote it. Like, he kind of came up with all the stuff, and, you know, he's the father of the constitution, really. Yeah, and up until his late life, he is like, uh, I am not the father of the constitution. This was an idea of a bunch of minds getting together. So he was a very modest man when it came to his role in the whole writing of the constitution. Okay, so the Constitutional Convention is over, and, you know, all, all of a sudden we have a new Constitution, right? I mean, that's how it—oh, wait, no, first we have to ratify it. And this is like a big deal. It's kind of like if your country works for a for a common cause for years, and then nobody wants to agree on it, and it just falls apart, and you have to start over. That's what was about to happen here. There was the issue that only certain states would ratify the Constitution. Some of them were only going to ratify it if other states did. Some of them were going to ratify it no matter what. Some of them were never going to ratify it. And between Hamilton and John Jay and James Madison, they write these things called the Federalist Papers. And of course, they do it with a pen name. But they write them to make sure that people understand the differences, um, the, the different types of wording and reasoning for things in the Constitution. And they become almost like a rebuttal to the anti-federalists, to the people who are not not on board with the Constitution at the time. And it's really super helpful because people who are typically not going to be terribly interested, or let's say you just heard from your neighbor that there's this constitution and it wasn't going to work out because of these things. Uh, Many people were able to get a copy of the Federalist Papers and there were a lot of the different editions of them and read up for themselves, see some, some pro reasoning for why the constitution should have been enacted. And Hamilton and John Jay and Madison are hugely influential in the country without even having their names out there. Yeah. It's kind of crazy because we hear a lot about, Eventually, they're coming to a consensus and all was well, but it was very contentious. And even among the Virginia delegation, there was some contention. And 
you got Patrick Henry and he is like the man when it comes to giving speeches and being persuasive. And he's really the most influential Virginian outside of George Washington or other than George Washington. And Madison isn't intimidated at all by Patrick Henry. He stands for the Constitution and getting this thing finished. And it happens because of the tenacity of Madison. So it's kind of interesting because at this point, many of the states, if not all of them, were pretty leery of having this big central government. And um, yeah, even up north, they were kind of leery of getting this thing passed. So something we've been addressing with these early presidents is their opinions and practices with slavery. And we're talking about the Constitution and everything here, so now's a good enough time to do it. Um, Madison actually, at this point in his life, and these things change over time, of course, but sets out with the view that, you know, the slaves are an un- unfortunate race. Um, their true nature, they're humans, but they're also a property. And it's a really, uh, I'm sure, popular view at the time, but it's a really conflicted view because he sees them as people. He wants to be compassionate, but also we own them and we should be able to do what we want. Madison is actually one of the people who backs the idea of making slaves be considered three for three fifths of a person um, for the reasons of, you know, having representation for Congress. Congressional representation is, of course, based upon how many citizens there are. And actually giving slaves three fifths was seen as too generous by many. And of course, by not generous at all by many more. So um, Madison says, yeah, slaves, they are property. They should be protected by their masters and the government. They're not like full out people and they can't really vote or anything, but we should also count them to make sure that those individuals are getting fair representation in Congress. We're not going to let them vote, but we want them to be part of it, but not like full part of it. So it's really a conflicted view. Uh, It's a a view that now we look at and say, this doesn't make any sense at all that you would value them and devalue them at the same time. Um, But I'm sure in 150 years, we'll have a lot of things that we look at and say, what were we doing? What were we thinking? Yeah, it's crazy because, you know, we talked about Madison. Well, he was born on a plantation and it was always something that was around him. He always had slaves around him, hundreds of slaves. And it was just taken for granted that, well, you had slaves and he had to have thought that he was being benevolent with this three-fifths and I mean really when you say that they have a three-fifths representation in a vote well you're pretty much saying that they're three-fifths of a person so Madison goes on and he is a delegate to the Confederation Congress of course in the past but now he wants to be a senator in this new government that they've created and Patrick Henry says no no, remember that little scuffle we had that Jason talked about a minute ago? Um, you're not gonna be you're not gonna be in Congress, sorry. So <laughs> Patrick Henry actually ensures that Madison is a lame duck in the Confederation Congress and makes it so that he can't campaign campaign for a very, very long time. Madison's like, 
I think I'm going to run for the House, for the Virginia House. That sounds like a good idea. And Patrick Henry actually gerrymanders Madison's district at his home. And Henry's like, I'm going to fill it with a bunch of anti-federalists and Madison's not going to get elected. So Madison's like, hmm, maybe I'll run in another district aside from my home district. And Henry very shrewdly says that you have to live within your district in order to get elected. So later on, that was seen as unconstitutional, but Henry (laughs) did just about everything he could to suppress Madison. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because Madison gets told by a lot of people who had been in his um, district and everything that, well, you know, if on election day, if it hadn't been such bad weather, James Monroe probably would have won. You know, we probably would have voted for him, but we didn't. Uh, But Madison actually defeats James Monroe and goes into Congress. And while he was in Congress, he's got this idea. Actually, during the Constitutional Convention, they have this idea. And uh, while he's in Congress, he's able to kind of help push it through. And it becomes, oh, I don't know, a little thing called the Bill of Rights, which you may have heard of once or twice. And a lot of people don't like it. A lot of people say, this isn't necessary. We've got the Constitution. That protects people. They're going to be all right with it. But Madison's like, no, we are, we're going to push this through. Yeah. And so now when most of us think of the Constitution, we do think of amendments. We think of the First Amendment. We think of the Second Amendment and so on. We are constantly talking about amendments. And this is something not to be taken for granted because of that whole role of inherently people have rights just because you're a person. It's inherent. So, Ben, We know James Madison as being the father of the Constitution and really drafting most of the Bill of Rights. I mean, he's the father of the Bill of Rights, too. And there is so much that we can say about the Bill of Rights because, well, nothing like that really existed anywhere until these were crafted. So we're going to give an entire episode to the Bill of Rights. So... Hang on, Bill of Rights lovers. Yeah, stay tuned for that. Obviously, Madison, as an influential member of Congress at this point, is going to have some impact on it. But he's kind of like, well, we said he was the father of the Constitution. He's really like the dude for uh, the Bill of Rights. I don't know if it's disrespectful to refer to the founding fathers as the dude, but um, I think it would be okay. Yeah, as long as it's not in written form, I think we're Uh okay. Okay, cool. So later on, the United States is doing their thing, right? And we're officially a neutral country. It's 1793. And Britain and France are going off to war with each other again. And there was an alliance with France back in 1778 that was drawn up. And there were people like Jefferson and Madison who said, you know what? French... The French people aren't that bad. We're gonna continue this alliance. We're gonna we're we're gonna we're gonna consider ourselves friends with the French. And then you had people like Hamilton and Washington and Adams who were much more in alignment with the British way of thought. And the thing is, is that a lot of our trade was with Britain. So you've got all kinds of different thoughts going on 
among Americans of what we should do. There's still that feeling that, are we really independent of Britain? Because Britain, they're impressing our troops and they are uh, our biggest trade partner. There's just a lot of things going on. So Madison gets elected to the House of Representatives in 1789, he gets reelected with actually 97.79% of the vote in 1790. So I guess you could say people kind of liked him. But here we go. Here comes the Democratic Republican Party. And this is going to be kind of a bit messy, I guess you could say, because this is where we see the big split happening. So Madison and other Democratic Party organizers. They were all about states' rights and having local control. And the Constitution kind of prevented some of the concentration of power because, well, it was a central government document, right? And you, of course, had Hamilton with his Bank of the United States, and Madison is doing everything he can do to block Hamilton. And Hamilton even complains. He says, quote, Mr. Madison cooperating with Mr. Jefferson is at the head of a faction decidedly hostile to me and my administration. Yeah, so you can pretty much understand that they're not going to be friends with each other after this is over or even during this or before it's over. Uh, You also see a little bit of Madison starting to come over to the side of I wouldn't say states' rights quite yet, but certainly not complete federal government control, because you remember earlier he thought that republicanism was kind of stupid, and we (laughs) shouldn't shouldn't really have a democratic society. So fast forward a little bit, you got President John Adams, the United States and France are kind of at war, but they're not really at war. We end up calling it the quasi-war, and it's basically just like a bunch of ships down in the Caribbean shooting at each other and people getting mad. So uh, it becomes this uh, uh, big deal that's also not a big deal because there's never formally a war. And Madison and Jefferson get together and they create these resolutions, which we talked about in the episode about Jefferson, but they create the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. And they say, no, the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were just a couple episodes ago, are unconstitutional. We shouldn't be doing that. And guess what? These opinions and these resolutions, not popular. And you guys shouldn't be calling for states to go against the federal government. That's how revolutions get started. We don't want to do this. And Jefferson's like, no, 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 we do. And Madison's like, dude, just chill. I think they're right this time. (laughs) So, yeah, as the guy who tempered Jefferson a bit and was able to see both sides of the issue of states' rights and strong government and and so on. Madison was really the guy who kind of evolved after time. So I mentioned earlier that James Madison wasn't able to get married when he wanted to in his early 20s or right when he was in college, I guess. So that actually would have been his late teens. So it's actually a lot later when that time actually comes for him. He's 43 years old and... You know, now that's like, okay, that's a little late, but not terribly late. I mean, at least, you know, at least it's in the early half of your life, hopefully. Uh, Back then, it was not in the early half of your life. And also, it was way late because, you know, power and 
you know, all that kind of stuff. So James Madison marries Dolly Payne Todd, and she, we talked about her previously, but she is actually a widow who had been married before, of course, and James didn't have any children, but she, he did adopt John Payne Todd. Uh, after he and Dolly were married. So if you want to know more about Dolly, go back and listen to our episode on Dolly Madison. That's a pretty good episode, in my opinion. Um, but all we're going to say is they married late. He married her late in life. Um, they were known to be pretty happy. They were. They had a good marriage. You know, they they did a lot of things in Washington and all around. And um, she's kind of the first first lady. So you know, that's a that's a little. Hint into what's about to happen. Yeah. She even helped out TJ quite a bit and was really important. That's a really important episode for everybody to listen to. So go back and listen to that episode on Dolly. Yeah. So Jefferson gets elected in 1800, begins serving in 1801. Madison becomes TJ's secretary of state. You know what happens when you become secretary of state? You have lots of dealings with foreign governments, and Madison and Jefferson have a lot of dealings with the French. And if you want to know how all of that progresses, you can tune into the next episode of Election College. Yeah, and also, if you want to know more about Jason's favorite person mentioned in this episode, Aaron Burr, you can check ah! out our uh, you can check out our audiobook at electioncollege.com slash dueling letters. It will be in the show notes as well. If you have Audible, you can pick up our audiobook, which is about the letters between Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson. You can pick that up there uh, for, I think it's only about $4, or you can use one of your credits, or you can even get it for free if you sign up for the first time for Audible. Um, we spent some good time on that. It was a lot of fun, and uh, we do hope to put out some more audiobooks in the future. Hint, hint. But uh, for now, that's the one we got. So we would love it if you could pick that up at electioncollege.com slash dueling letters. Yeah, and we'd love to interact with you. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Election College. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, everybody. Tune in to the next episode for more about your friend and ours, James Madison. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.